0: Hello, it's producer Andrew Harrison here. We hope you've uh, enjoyed a refreshing drink. Here's part two of Oh God, What Now, live in Brighton.
1: That's amazing because I I could only see how many people here with the lights because when I first came on, I just thought there were about 10 people. <laughs> uh, on the front, so I'm glad that the other rows are full as well. It's a good-looking
2: crowd. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, all right, all right.
1: Um, well, welcome back. In the second half, uh, are we due a political vibe shift? Uh, Boris Johnson limps on. The Queen's reign is past the halfway mark. Um, <laughs> what's the next few years have in store for the United Kingdom? Or <laughs> the disunited kingdom yeah. um, in we'll a word when we first <laughs> in a word how would we describe the vibe of the country at the moment uh, alex we'll go around in, in order there
2: um, rancid <laughs> yeah. it's a thing that was once good but now has gone off
0: um That's <laughs> You asked for what? you are not
3: allowed to swear. Oh, Usually yeah. I'm going to say cunted, aren't I? I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, of course I am. So let's just get it done with. Yeah, to so cunt cunted.
0: Yeah.
3: Mm.
4: Um, I'm going to say I'm going to say uptight. Do I? don't need to spell that out. Do you know I? mean, it's not, not good. No, not it's just, good. The, yeah, the, generally in a word. Um, was the melancholy
1: subtext of the jubilee, um, the the Queen passing away, is going to be extremely intense and at a time of sort of ongoing national insecurity. I don't imagine we're going to suddenly have a spell of national security, you know, well-being mm. um, in the near future. She made it to 120. I could be completely wrong. Um, but, you know, did you, did you sort of feel that in the background, even when Rod Stewart was singing Sweet Caroline, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> that there was a kind of a sense of, of, of farewell?
0: Yeah, I, I watched that concert. It was great, wasn't it? It was just. So memorable for so many reasons. Um, yeah, there is there there is that melancholy. I was on the uh, on the you know first day of the four day orgy that we that we all enjoyed. I, I took I took my son. <laughs> I took my well, son. Why not
1: use the time wisely? I still
0: <laughs> 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 I took my son outside London because he was putting me under great pressure to, to go to the mall and uh, watch. You know. A, a tidy figure waving, um, and uh, I wasn't going to have that, obviously. And also, he would have freaked out had he actually been in a crowd that big. So we didn't do that. We went to the North Downs Way and we had a stroll along a nice, you know, deserted, deserted um, uh, path in in Kent and ended up in a village, which I think was a bit like the one you mentioned in Suffolk, um, because there really was, yeah, there, there was there was a full full flag display. And there were there was a full flagpole in the pub garden, and bunting. It was overwhelming. Anyway, that's Kent for you. But anyway, to get to, to return to, to return to the anecdote that I started. It's like Ronnie that. Corbett. <laughs> <laughs> he was sitting there saying, "Can I marry? Can I marry Charlotte?" And I was like, "You can, <laughs> you can." Um, and I thought, "My God, this is going to be the last platinum jubilee, not just of my life." But of the only platinum jubilee of everybody 's lives who are alive now pretty much There's there's very very little chance that anybody alive now is going to see a platinum jubilee mm. there's a very very little chance that I will see another jubilee for that matter so suddenly it came home, home to me as I was sitting on uh, eating, a, eating a dried up bit of cheese on this bit of the, oh. of the north of the north dance way and it, yeah but it is going to be it is going to be difficult, and it's going to be a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. We won't be able to tell a story about the next couple of reigns, at least, because mm. these will be old men coming to the throne very late, probably, in their lives. There just won't be the opportunity to have that, to have that royal story. And I think the impression that we'll get will be of an exhausted country whose institutions are worn out, decaying, and exhausted. That will be the face almost that we are it was, presenting it was, to the world.
4: It was very revealing, wasn't it, when Charles sat in for the Queen's speech, and although he's notionally the next generation, when he was there, like Edwardian gentleman mm. in his full-dress uniform with the medals for, I don't know what, you know, like he didn't, where, where, what is he was fighting in there, you know, it's like how he's, he's sort of, Polo medals or something that he got from coming second in the egg and spoon Biscuit, race. Dutch original, you know. Uh, but it felt all like the kind of you know, the the marsh, yeah, like kind of as I say, like you know, cross between, you know, sort of an Edwardian gentleman and Mister T with all the kind of stuff, and yeah. and it just uh, it felt way more old fashioned. And I thought actually, that it, it's going to be it's, it, 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 the the just the sort of the obsolescence of it and the antiquity of it is going to be very jarring very quickly. Actually, once he's king, I think.
3: I thought he looked really good.
1: Well, you like him. You said you no, like that was Paddington. Because...
4: You're getting mixed up. <laughs> but you like
1: him because of his wintry melancholy. But that's probably not what the nation needs, is it?
3: I disagree. I think that they profoundly need it and want it and <laughs> feel it deep in their hearts. And they're going to get it. And <laughs> they're going to get it really hard. Get it hard. Well, wintry melancholy is probably the best single description of the British character, along with sort of silent aching yearning.
2: <laughs> I think he
3: summarizes that very well.
4: Holding on in quiet desperation is the English way.
3: It is exactly, yeah? exactly. Yeah, yeah. They were thinking of Charles when they wrote that lyric. Um,
4: Raph, it's very hard
1: for, for ailing governments to find a new lease of life. I mean, is that... I mean, it, sort of historically, is it sort of irreversible that once you've got to a point where you appear to have no ideas... Like, is there ever a kind of way
4: that, a, a while in government? Because I'm just thinking in my lifetime. The answer is no. No. To the question. Right. I mean, so there was a, a couple of things. I mean, I remember Ed Balls actually said this to me once. Like, we tried so hard when Gordon Brown came in. Right. to do Right. And it's really, really hard. And there was this great story of, you know, when you become prime minister and the, uh, you know, the, the head of the civil service, the cabinet secretary comes in, um, uh, you know, the cabinet secretary. And the first thing he always says is, is what are your instructions for government, Prime Minister? That's the sort of the convention. Uh, and you know everyone had been waiting for Gordon Brown to come in and thinking he had, he, there must be something in his little knapsack of ideas that he'd been carrying around for 10 years that he was going to do. Uh, and he replied to the Cabinet Secretary, who was Gus O'Donnell, I think, at that time, and said, um, what was Tony going to do? He had nothing. What? Um, and, you know, and so but what, what the, the extraordinary thing that Boris Johnson pulled off, um, apart from himself... Uh, is the 2016? <laughs> it's making Brexit, because Brexit was essentially a kind of revolution. <clears throat> uh, and a part of the the sort of cultural apparatus of revolution is it's year one in the new calendar, like the old ways, it's all ancien regime. I mean, the fact that basically Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband, David Cameron, George Osborne, all the same party somehow, they're all remainers. You know, mm. Hang on. They, they, that, that was an extraordinary thing to have achieved, to make that all ancien regime. Theresa May, literally everyone who wasn't Boris Johnson, this is year one. Everything's sort of preamble 2016, but really everything starts in 2019. Yeah. Um that means, you know, he's got this whole new era. But actually, what we've got now is we're in year 12 of the Tory incumbency, year 13. And yeah. actually, now that, that spell has broken, and all the gravity that he postponed uh, of the full decade of incumbency is now landing on him, and he's fired, I think, in that respect. And so,
2: then, so maybe you're making we should me be swear. I normally restrain. Like, strain myself. But, but then maybe we should <laughs> be grateful, because that resetting to year one, you know, maybe when the next person oh, yeah. come in just by virtue of not looking like a pile of laundry and <laughs> saying the wrong thing at the wrong time always, people will think, oh, so this is actually quite me. maybe." Yeah, I think there
1: is that long-term sort of rot behind, uh, behind a government when it's been around too long. Um, Raph, the media's been criticised for focusing, It's always criticised for focusing on Westminster drama rather than policies. Unlike us, we never mention Westminster drama. LAUGHTER um, is that, but I mean, is it hard to do for journalists to go big on policy if the two main parties don't have big ones to talk about? Like if you're basically running against what the news is?
4: Yeah, I think up to a point, there are always policies. the you know, Leveling up is an actual idea. I mean, it's, it's an absurdity in the way it's being delivered, but you could look at ways in which it's being done. There are actual policy things you could talk about. I think the biggest structural problem... Uh, you know, and I, I can defend the lobby system up to a point, but I think there is a, 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 a more profound structural problem in the way that the culture of Westminster politics and reporting the way it's done uh, has acquired that sense of the rolling parlor game. Mm. That means we do end up fo- obsessing about personalities. That's exact, I mean, Boris Johnson becoming prime minister is, is, is a product of that and then an amplification of it because we end up just psychoanalyzing the prime minister mm. instead of actually thinking about what you would do to fix... the problems of the country and then within that you then get this situation where the the way you get advanced through the party ranks or the way you get noticed is by being good at media appearances being good at briefing working out how to cede your lines to the right journalists so the quality so there are mps so like um um oh what's the name of the uh, mp east ham uh recently got a knighthood a labor guy was stephen timms thank you um
3: would you like to come up?
4: Yeah. So, like, there's a classic example of a of a really thoughtful, decent, smart person knows everything about knew everything about the welfare brief, lots of <laughs> things about policy. Didn't didn't play the Westminster game. You know, you I, the number, I would, when I was political editor for New Statesman, I'd you know meet him and have lunch and. It was awful. He, you know, he, he knew everything about the brief, but he wouldn't gossip about what was going on and what was wrong with Ed and what was happening in the Shadow Cabinet. And I respected and admired him for that, but there's that awful, the devil on your shoulder going, I can't use half of this in a column because he's not giving me the dirt. And good, good on him for not doing it. And it's, it's sort of shameful that I felt the need to excavate that from someone. But those people, there are plenty of them, but they do not become part of the media narrative. enough. Yeah, I was aware, someone pointed this, point this out to me it hadn't struck me because i really
1: enjoyed like uh you know reading tim shipman's books which is kind of like the high the sort of peak of that gossip driven thing and then some pointed out that there was never any mention of politics or how anybody's lives might be affected That it was all inside westminster yeah. and i thought you know and that that is such a dominant so, but and then i suppose it's more entertaining than mm-hmm. Frankly, isn't it? That's the problem, is that if you're trying to sell people on, like, really important life-changing policies,
2: and, and they also, don't
1: have the sort of, a lot of the time, the personalities attached, the kind of drama. You know, they're serious. And you want people to be doing that serious work. But
2: it, it's, it's also more, more determinative of what happens, which is what's infuriating. Mm. You know, that this is what we're seeing. We're seeing what we're seeing unfold is someone mm. who was... Peaked that someone younger from the Bullington Club got made prime minister first. And then, you know, his girlfriend had an argument with his best mate. So he got rid of his best. I mean, and, and those are the things that affect our lives, not policy. Mm. It's the soap opera that's going on behind. That, that's what's so difficult to take.
1: It is quite funny. I suppose, seeing Dominic Cummings, who was always about just kind of like policies and big ideas and big structural stuff, and now he's basically known as the guy that called him for shopping trolley. Mm. <laughs> you know, like the jilted best mate. Yeah. Um, Ian, in the dog days of the major government, it felt like we were on the sort of precipice of something new and exciting,
3: with new
1: labor, mm-hmm. exciting labor. Um, is that what's missing now, that we've got this sense of one force in decline, but not yet. I'm not talking about the polls here, yeah. but
3: of another kind of coming era. Yeah, because there's two aspects to it. There's two absences in the Starmer project. And I say this as someone that quite likes him and generally believes him when he says I'm, I've got integrity and decency. And I'm like, yeah, you do. And that should be a laughably low bar to when we talk about politics. But actually, right now, it fucking isn't. So show me anyone that really has that and, and I will vote for them. Um, The things that are lacking, okay, on the one hand, we talk a lot about the charisma stuff. Charisma does sort of matter in the way that you present, in the way that you can give a sense of urgency and dynamism to your political project. Fine, that's well covered, very well covered elsewhere. The bit that concerns me is that there is a kind of intellectual architecture that's missing, I think, in the project. Now, that was not the case with Blair. Blair had the benefit of the social justice Forum that had been set up by John Smith that had been doing years of detailed policy work. By the time that you came up to 1997, none of those guys really had served in cabinet, but they fucking knew exactly what they wanted to do. <laughs> they had a proper set of policies, well thought through, very detailed, years in the making, ready to go. Now, Annalise Dodds, who I rather admire, although I'm told she's not, you know, flashy enough or something. It's just like, well, she was supposed to be the fucking shadow chancellor. Like I can go other places for flashy. Um, She is now working on the policy document. Uh, She's been working on it for some time now. And I've got to say, the initial things we see aren't that exciting, really. And, 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 And I have to say that I do think a lot of that stems from Starmer himself, who doesn't really seem to have any... politics, (laughs) politics, <laughs> where well, it seems damning, and maybe it is more damning than, I, uh, than I've really thought through, that, yeah. that, that ultimately there is no big project. So, so you see the death of, of the governing party, then you look to Labour and you're like, I get the strategy, wait for these guys to fuck up, they're fucking up, you're winning now. And I think that, honestly, that can work. Maybe he's exactly the right guy for if you need to counterpose to someone, you know, who can't dress themselves. But... In terms of policy and the delivery of it, it does feel quite lacking. And I think that's the reason that, that it's quite hard to think there's this shining future over here for us if we were just select it. Because the Labour left had a ton of
1: ideas under Corbyn, many of them good, not always presented in the right way by the right people. Um, what sort of happened there? Are there still things coming out of,
3: you know, the world transformed or whatever? Are there still ideas? I, I don't see it. So, I mean, firstly, they became very bad at selling their ideas internally in the party, because most of the time that you try to have a conversation with them, they're just like, you fuck! And you're like, well, I don't really want to have that conversation with you, if that's okay. And so they, they've lost their voice within the party. Um, <laughs> then, there's, <laughs> then there's the, the, the ideas themselves. And, and I think the thinking around some, a lot of the time, uh, from lots of those new Labour people was fine you know, let's say we want to nationalize, you know, all the buses or, or whatever. And then you can show and you can look at this poll and it's going to fucking support and Tory voters will support it. But it, that's, that's not how policy works in politics. What, what matters is who is talking about the policy. Tories can talk about nationalizing the buses as much as they fucking like, and it will fly, okay? If Labour starts talking about nationalizing buses, that is, a, that is heard in a very different way. Now, I'm not saying that that's right or that's wrong. I actually think that going too far with that idea can lead you to cowardice and to a complete lack of any kind of ideological infrastructure in your head. Um, but the thing is, I think they believe it in the leadership. And for that reason, most of those left-wing policies at the moment have been jetted. Maybe they'll find some bravery to pick two or three of them, but I've got to say that sort of intellectual daring doesn't seem to be where the Labour Party is at the moment.
4: I'll just tack one little thing on, on top of that, which I think is very important, is that the, the whole fiscal debate which defined the period 2010 to basically 2019, 20, Mm. has completely unraveled in the way it used to be. So you had a long period where basically the Tories were saying, their their narrative was Labour spent all the money and it didn't work, didn't get enough people out of poverty, we can do austerity and we can find other ways of making people happy. And the big society will deliver motherhood and apple pie. And the Labour argument was, no, that doesn't work. You're going to run the economy into the ground. We need to raise taxes and and spend more, basically, and you can do it by borrowing. Uh, And in that context, if the policy question was, what are we going to do? Automatically, the follow up question was, Well, how are you going to pay for it? And then the combination of the pandemic and Boris Johnson basically not really caring about fiscal policy at all means you have a situation where the conservatives are running a bizarre fiscal policy where mm. they are, you know, they're borrowing plenty. Are people on the conservative side saying you could borrow more. They're, they're all over the place on, on taxes, as you say. And so, actually, the conceptual frame for how do you affect the kind of big social change that we would like to see which for the best part of 15 years has mm. been who's going to pay for it, isn't a left-right argument anymore. And I think that's really changed the way we talk about politics. So therefore we there's less excuse
1: for, for this lack of big ideas then, because you can't, do, you can't say, oh, we're worried how we're going to, you know, say we're going to pay for it. Should we call it clown car Keynesianism? <laughs> yes. That's patent. <laughs> patent that. <about. laughs> patent. Um... Alex, there is a kind of a lot of time when people are looking for hope. There's the sort of arc of history argument, which you know has taken a bit of a, a battering has in seen recent seen years. Seen. But I still see people talking about like um, you know Gen Z being just this wonderful, like totally kind of clued up, you know, woke, climate friendly, sensitive, um, and the Boomers just being these awful shits, and then. You know, Gen X, Everyone forgetting that Gen X exists, even though, like, fucking Steve Baker's Gen X, isn't he? I mean, he's not. He's not what Douglas Copeland
4: and Kurt Cobain had in mind, is it?
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, Key facts here: Jacob Rees-Mogg is younger than Kylie Minogue. Never forget that.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Why? <laughs> Why would you? Don't do boo that. the facts.
1: Boo! <laughs> boo! <Boom. laughs> Be older. Um. Do you think that, you know, that. I'm so still my- reeling, I'm reeling. <laughs> you can't get it
2: out of your head, can you? <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Better the devil, you know. Ama-
1: just amazing.
3: That's um, uh, uh, <laughs> true what I say. <laughs>
2: Have
3: you yeah, just broken so it- Dorian? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just, Suddenly I, I just had all these
1: Kylie kind of things. Like, uh, yeah, step we should back be so time, lucky here. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, Alex, is the generational thing sort of overstated? That there was almost this idea of kind of that you know, the, once the old people have, have left the stage, hmm. um, and then the young people are here, everything's going to be kind of you know, everything's going to be kind of groovy. I, my <laughs> daughter, by the way, who was fifteen when I mentioned this to her, uh, that the Amber Heard, the sort of the weird yeah, yeah. Depp Heard situation with teenagers. Um, and she went, oh, my generation is
2: awful. Just, it goes, they're very, very overrated. <laughs> sure, but maybe being aware of that puts them a step ahead. Um, yeah. I d- look, I don't know. I mean, the truth is, I like hope. <laughs> I reach <laughs> for it. Um, and and I, I do look at my nieces and nephew, and I think they are a lot more informed and a lot more clued up than I was at their age. True, But then again, they are a small sample of people who are in my family and the friends they hang out with are people like them. So then I think that, you know, there's an Alex somewhere in Texas that likes guns and Trump and QAnon. What are his nephews and nieces like? And the one thing we know statistically is that he has a fuck of a lot more of them than I do. Could we do a... Because he's got 12 siblings and one of them is his wife. Could we do a... Could we do a flat share sitcom with the two Alexes? <laughs> that
1: would be okay. That is genius. Yeah. Um, oh, he's left his guns everywhere again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so I I don't I, I think the thing that will have a real impact actually is the disappearance of the generation that actually experienced the war. Um because I just I think sometimes if there, if there are Holocaust deniers around now, when there are people who go, mm-hmm. sorry, I was there. I mean, what will they be like after those people are gone? And I just think that is the collective yeah. wisdom that we will lose and we will struggle to replace. Um, so, but then again, looking twenty years ago you know, the the hopeful, optimistic um, uh, atmosphere that was around the millennium. You know, I remember it so well, uh, sort of New Year's Eve going into 2000. People were on the bridges and they were hugging each other and everything was great and was money being pumped into the NHS and schools. And we thought it was going to be terrific going forwards and it turned out really badly. So m- maybe we are now in the in the flip side of that. And just when we think everything's going to go to shit, actually things will improve quite quickly. Well, One thing I do wonder about in terms of uh,
1: generational churn um, is is the power of the newspapers, or particularly the power of the right-wing newspapers. Um, And as people are getting their news elsewhere, and obviously some papers like The Guardian, um, have, you see a very strong sort of, you know, online life as well. But Raph, do you think that, you know, this whole thing of what what are the newspaper front pages, the fact that still some people are responding to whatever kind of, like, brain drivel is coating the cover of The Express, it still seems like, you know, TV, I suppose we're going to have to talk about that. Do you think that will, you do you think that is already
4: changing, a sort of weakening of the power of your your mails and your yeah, I mean, Well, to an extent, it obviously has done because the, yeah. you wouldn't have had the 2017 general election result that you had if the, right. the, 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 the red tops and the Tory press had been able to dictate the agenda as they once previously had done. Where that is still effective is not the mass readership. It's the transmission mechanism through broadcast. It's the fact that, you know, when you, the questions that get asked of the minister on the Today programme are the ones right. that are asked by the front pages of the newspapers. So the, the sort of Starmer, gate, Korma, Chicken Curry thing... Um, was 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 amplified as an issue because five consecutive days the mail decided that that was an issue equivalent to partygate mm. um, and and whether or not there was you know there were questions to answer that it they it it weren 't equivalent questions now it 'll be very interesting to see you know because at the same time these you know, these newspapers <clears throat> you know they, they do still have to serve their readers and if they get on the wrong side of that, they can flip and you know there is this question you talk about in the mid nineties you know, there came a point where actually the sun and the male and the others, they realized they needed to be on the right side of, of what was gonna, obviously going to happen in 1997. And what we're going to see now over the next year or so as, Johnson, you know, as as the Johnson Project really sours and returns nasty and they try and go full bore culture war and, and the, 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 sort of the, the cheerleaders for that, you know, the, the project energy of that is going to be sort of hardline moggism. Will, which I think isn't where the country is, you know, will there be a culture shift where the, the, actually the Tory press starts to see, oh, these people are cranks and freaks right. and actually tilts more centre because that's where the country is? Or do they just go, they think, actually, no, we, we can go full fox on this and we can generate enough noise to, keep, to make that the narrative? And I'm not, I wouldn't call it either way, actually. I think it's mm. possible they'll suddenly go, no, actually, these guys are losing and we don't want to go down with them. We're going to call them cranks now.
1: Uh, two more future things Um, Roz uh, sometimes Scottish people are annoyed that we don't talk about Scotland so are there any
0: Scottish people here tonight can I just check
1: right we're going to talk about Scotland just (laughs) ease off um was one of the things that I've always felt has driven—not um, solely, but a part of—the um, of, of drive for sort of Scottish independence and this huge sort of anger um, with, you know, with being governed from Westminster is the fact that so often there's a Tory government. And back when it went when it we voted Labour, they're like, "Well, we didn't vote for this Tory government." Now, obviously, you know, obviously was voting SNP, same deal. Do you feel like? I mean, it's, you know, if you actually look at the numbers, it's not as if kind of a, as an independence referendum is an obvious, you know, win, right, you know, yet. Do you think that a Labour-led coalition, the next election would take some more of the wind out of that? I mean, I just wonder how long this momentum mm. is, can sort of keep up.
0: It could do. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has had an extraordinary run. I mean, you know, the last set of election results shows how popular the SNP continues oh. to be. So it's a very strange position because if we do find ourselves after the next general election with a Labour, Lib Dem, SNP kind of coalition arrangement and if the price of that for Starmer or whoever is in charge of the Labour Party at the time, if the price of that has been a promise of a referendum, then that is both an opportunity and an enormous risk for Nicola Sturgeon. Because while there is the realistic possibility of a referendum in the next couple of years or so, then, you know, she's in a constant attack footing and she can trade off that. And, of course, the fact that the Conservatives are in charge is naturally good for her. It's always going to be good for her. But if we end up having a Labour government that is competent, that gets things done, and there's a referendum then there is a strong possibility that it could turn against her and people could say, no, actually, I'm cool with this now. Johnson's gone. The Tories have gone. Uh, Labour's in charge. I can live with that. I want to stay in the union. So it's a big risk that she, that she will be taking because it will undoubtedly be the, be the price of any cooperation that she makes. I mean, she, uh, Starmer needs, needs her very badly and Labour needs, uh, needs Scotland in the UK very badly. Um, at least uh, uh, in the the foreseeable future. So there's a uh, a couple of different ways it could go, and I'd I'd hesitate to predict that. I will will, uh, conclude my remarks by by saying that um, (laughs) I can can always completely understand the Scottish desire for independence. Mm. Economically, it it may not be a good idea, but nor was Brexit. Um,
1: and that's worked out great. So,
0: and but I don't compare. Yeah, you know, I don't compare the two the two impulses because I think it's that uh, they're not comparable. And I think there is a powerful impulse in Scotland for independence, um, which I can completely sympathise with on an emotional level, even though I'm not Scottish.
1: Do you want independence from us? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Are you Scotland?
0: No, I, I'm. I kind of almost Welsh, but not
1: quite. <laughs> Um, finally, Ian, if we're talking about some sort of political, you know, rejuvenation, um, one thing that if Naomi were here, she would be talking about would be electoral reform. Do you think that's something that would bring us a whole new kind of politics or, or is that perhaps too much to sort of heap on it that suddenly it's going to kind of, you know, rejuvenate? Um, the
3: no, honestly, the people we get. I don't think you can overstate the importance of it. I think it's the precondition of almost everything that we want to do with the country. Like, you look at the, why why are the laws so bad? The the reason the laws that we pass are so bad is because of the inbuilt majority that you get by virtue of first-past-the-post, that big, thumping majority. So imagine that you're an opposition party, right? You're looking at the legislation, you're like, how do I amend it when it's a committee stage? You know, what are the amendments I put down? Are you going to try to put down an amendment that makes it work any differently, or are you going to grandstand? You're going to grandstand because you can't fucking change it. If you're a government, you're overtaken with the machismo, with the ability that you can just put whatever the fuck you want in legislation, and it will pass because of the size of your majority. Look at the way that um, the hate speech bill went in the Scottish Parliament. Okay? It was a fucking terrible piece of legislation. By the time it comes out, it was significantly improved because you have to have parties working right. together on piece of legislation. Then think about, like, we're in a very weird place here, Brighton, in any number of ways. Um, But specifically, politically, because it's the only place where the Green Party was able to find a localised support to get into Parliament. The rest of the time, you know how many fucking votes the Green Party got in 2017? One million votes. One million votes and it got one MP for that. That is a deranged fucking system for you to have. But what does it do to us psychologically? Why is the SNP so successful? Not because of the amount of votes that it gets but because it has localised support in certain areas. Why are the Tories so successful? Because it's localised support in certain areas. Same with the DUP. If you're a party that gets considerable support across the country, Mm. you're penalised by the system. So it encourages all of this kind of, which plays into the culture, all of this vision of us versus you, of we're distinct. That whole attitude, I think, threatens to tear apart the country in any number of ways. And then what does it do to your identity when you're in one of those areas? 40% of London roughly voted Leave. And you look at those red wall seats, supposedly Brexity, Brexit, Brexit, 40% of them voted Remain. Okay? But that kind of mixture of a political identity and the thoughts isn't summed up. It first past the post is just no, this guy's one. Okay? Mm. That's how you get it with the MP. So we're this kind of area, that's what we are, where this it's this great block making of humanity. So that all of our nuances taken and we're just constantly shattering against each other. Any way you want to look at it, whether it's psychological, whether it's constitutional, whether it's legislative, whether it's political, we have to fix the fucking electoral system. No, I agree with that. One... What, what?
1: You, you totally question time that ending, didn't you? Yeah.
4: <laughs> I mean, not the fucking, yeah. but the kind of the <laughs> dun, the dun, the dun. That was very good. Yeah, I, I almost don't want to follow up with a sort of technical observation on that one. Okay, so anyway... <laughs> which, he which did you, the uh, question-time ending. <laughs> the... Um, the interesting thing in with regards to scotland actually is that although the SNP support was growing and growing and that was brewing the breakthrough happened in part because you had you got proportional voting in the assembly election mm-hmm. and there are so and you know a fascinating often forgotten election result is the european parliamentary elections in 2019 which were weird for all sorts of reasons but the Tories got nine percent nine percent in that yeah. vote like number one brexit party number two the Lib Dems, you know, it was insane. When, you, when, and, you know, Welsh politics is very different from English politics. When British voters are given an electoral system that doesn't create these weird internal coalitions within parties, they don't yeah. want Labour or Tory necessarily. They yeah. immediately take the opportunity to break that duopoly, uh, And which is
0: obviously why so many people
4: in both Labour and Conservative Party don't want to give them that chance.
0: And that is why, of course, the Conservatives have abolished the system in London. And uh, taking it back to first past the post because uh, they don't want that to happen anymore.
1: Well, have we fixed the UK? We should have
4: done more of that, shouldn't
0: I? I
1: Yeah, have we fixed the (laughs) UK? (laughs) I think we have. Um, Before we go to questions, um, just going to wrap up part two of the Boris Johnson uh, lifetime achievements quiz. Um, Which of these did Johnson not fall asleep during? Uh, Sex. The state opening of parliament in 2015.
3: <laughs> How can you be so sure? Oh, actually, I, bet I bet he
1: did. <laughs> at an airport in Perugia after partying with uh, Lebedev
3: yeah,
1: at COP26. Which of those did he not fall asleep? What was the first one? State opening of parliament 2015.
4: Yeah, he stayed awake in that. Hmm? I think he stayed awake in that. He stayed one. awake? Yeah.
1: One for nice. Uh Inflation. Wait, was that correct? Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh. Mm. Inflation is often measured by the price of Freddos. Um, Boris Johnson's Garden Bridge project cost 53.5 million pounds despite never being constructed. <laughs> you are How kidding many me. Freddos could you buy with <laughs> 53.5 million
3: pounds?
4: 53.5 million? Yeah. Okay. What
3: are they, 45
4: feet? I reckon, mm. no, so they have got about 20 feet. I reckon you can get five for a pound, so that's going to be... About two hundred and seventy-five million friends. No,
2: I think you get you get just over three for a pound. <laughs> so I'd say <laughs> one hundred and sixty-five million.
0: Aren't they ten p each? Last time. No,
2: no, no. 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 What, when was in the, the last ones in
4: mainland maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: maybe. Um, well, Alex was because actually one hundred and seventy-eight million three hundred thirty-three
2: thousand three hundred thirty-four. I mean, it's not far. So, not far. Shall I tell you an interesting thing about Fredo's? No. Just because we studied them <laughs> <laughs> when we were doing market investigations. So they started out <clears throat> 17 grams, and they're now 18 grams. So they're, they're going the opposite way from most things which are I don't shrinking. even know what they are. They're little chocolate frogs. You can't suck tea through them. It, it's a disaster. <laughs> okay. So the frog is called Freddo? Yeah. Okay.
3: Sorry, um, did, did you write any of these questions? Or?
1: No. No, but that's why they're fun for me too. <laughs> they're written by uh, a crack team of question setters and quiz masters. And finally, how many children does Boris Johnson have? <laughs> <clears throat> Officially, according to Wikipedia. Oh.
3: So that's a weird definition of officially,
1: <laughs> but sure. Mm. It's as close as we're going to get. Five?
3: How no. Does,
4: does no that was like man. before he married Carrie. No, like, he's got
2: seven. He's got seven confirmed, but I think there's sufficient evidence to say eight, because when he had the paternity suit with that woman, the judge found that he was habitually not having, not using protection, and that that had caused is, him I don't, I don't to have it. a child. <laughs> extramaritally meant to be a fun with at least two women. So I think it's eight that we know of. Uh, any more bids? How I think uh, one.
0: How does any man really know how many children he has? I mean, I'm sure that's what Johnson himself would say. Um, would... Well, the answer
1: is, according to Wikipedia, seven. Mm. That's not definitive. He may have been spaffing it up the wall. Across the debate the will go on long into
2: the night on this one.
0: Not at all, anyway, Dorian.
1: that's thankfully all we've got time for. <laughs> um, I'm Dorian Linsky. This is Alexandre, Thank you. Roz Taylor. <laughs> Ian Dunt, And special guest, Raph Bear. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thank you... To so the production team, Andrew, Martin, Robin, Jacob, Yelena, Jade, and Alex, and special thanks to assistant producer Elena on her last week with us. There. I think maybe calculating the Freddos, just, she was like, forget this. And thanks to you for supporting us and spending your uh, evening with us, whether in person or online. It's very nice. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, now it's time to set out our microphone. We've got how long have we got? have got 10 minutes for some questions. Um, hello. So we'll try and answer them quickly so we can get through a few.
3: Oh, um, how would the panel, with, with everything going on at the moment, there's a lot of things from the Conservative press about um, labor snp coalition. How would you say the best way is for... Labour to kind of neutralise that as a threat, because that's clearly what the Tories are going to do to try and say, don't vote for them because you're going to get the coalition of chaos, as famously phrased. Um, yeah, I just want to thought what the panel's thoughts were on that. Well, I, can... I mean, this is the
2: fourth time now, isn't it? The coalition of chaos stuff. It was like, yeah. vote for me, David Cameron, or chaos under Ed Miliband. Then we had it three more times. Um, so it's probably wearing a little bit thin, <laughs> I would imagine. Even for the average Express reader, they must look at it and think, I've seen this before.
0: I think, Ruff, I th- I think it. it's just not the threat it used to be. I mean, people have seen that uh, you know, like, uh, the SNP already has a great deal of power over Scotland. I think you can quite easily portray a coalition as, you know, status quo plus, you know, a bit a bit more Labour presence in Scotland, and that's not a huge change, as, as you say. I don't think it. it I don't think it, it. It's really it. It, it terrifies the electorate. In the way that the Conservatives imagine it does, I'm not so
4: quite so sure about that. I think, first of all, it was definitely something that the Lib Dems said hammered them in 2016 was that the, the fear of Ed Miliband being, you know, having being sort of led by the nose by um, by then Alex Salmond, and it is a fact that Labour don't get you know, have never had a majority without a load of Scottish seats, and their recovery in Scotland isn't great. The 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 reason it was so resonant in that 2016 election was partly, not 2016, what well, I'm talking about, the 2015 15, election, yeah. um, uh, was uh, Labour didn't see it coming, but also because Ed Miliband, it played to a narrative of Ed Miliband being a bit weak and not really knowing what he was about. And uh, the, the, the crucial thing is that Starmer can see it coming, mm-hmm. and they do at least have a position on this now, which is, you know, if the question is, what would you give Nicola Sturgeon in order to be able to govern? He can just say, nothing. I dare you to support Boris Johnson instead. Really? Mm. Is that what you're going to do? I, I don't need to give them anything because their alternative is keeping this lot in. And if anyone in Scotland really, really thinks that they want, Nicola, that more, want more Tory government, fine. Then, then you ask oh. Nicola Sturgeon whether she'd do that. And that's, that's what they should do, and that's what they will do. Because then, ultimately, <clears throat> the... The reality is the, the, the imp- there's so much anti-Tory impetus out there now, that some of which was restrained in 2019 because of fear of Jeremy Corbyn, that, and the, 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 the Lib Dem you know, vote will now bounce back in all sorts of places. So there's all sorts of ways in which you can get close enough that I think Stamp can get away with that position in a way that Ed Miliband couldn't.
1: Another question? Wow, it's loaded.
2: Um, if you haven't spent all your um, sovereigns or guineas on uh, Freddie Frogs, um,
1: <laughs> who out of the members of the cabinet would you put your money on as being the first to actually denounce Johnson and resign? John.
3: Oh, good question. Ooh. No, that is good. Hmm, that is a good one. I thought it was going to be a boring question, and then it was an interesting one.
2: Cabinet. <laughs> you're, you're saying member of the cabinet, right? <laughs> that's the parameters. <clears throat> I yeah. think it's going to be Javid. Yeah, I was about to say, if you're in the whip's office, who's who's on resignation
4: watch? I'd I'd keep an eye on. Yeah, I think it's Senator
2: David. Yeah, done it before. Do it again.
0: (laughs) Rather pathetically, I want to believe in Starmer. You see a lot of stuff these days about why are Labour relying on Johnson self-igniting and not setting out a comprehensive attractive program but I wonder um, Johnson is cunning and feral and I don't think he's he's into original thought although I don't believe he's stupid I think he is bright would he not if Labour set out this wonderful program which everyone could like would Johnson not just nick the best ideas and is that why they're actually thinking ahead and holding back
3: I, I think undoubtedly it is and he's going to nick some of them i mean they really only have one major cost of living policy and he has now taken that one um and occasionally w- the danger of that is that what you'll see and i think he, saw, i think it was the today program that this happened recently and i think it was rachel reeves but health warning on that was and the guy goes okay so right so you know you had the tax the windfall tax what are the other ideas? And they were like, oh, fuck, I'm not, really, I'm not really entirely sure. You know, there's, there's a few little bits and pieces. You do, absolutely, some of it will get stolen. Okay, some of it will get stolen. But you do need to have, I think, an alternate agenda. And I don't mean that all the policies have to be upfront on day one. There's a lot of nonsense around the word policy, where they're just like, where's the policy? Where's the policy? Corbynites love saying that at the moment, it's just kind of laughable. Um, but ultimately, you do need to have an alternate vision. And I think Maybe the specific policies would matter less if you had a very clear idea of what the alternate vision is. But without that, it, it does feel like there's a bit of an absence there. I don't mean a full manifesto at the moment, but just a bit more meat on the bone. Well, one thing that throws me is there are certain people there who I was following perhaps, you know, before, during
1: the Corbyn years. You know, from the backbenchers, what were they saying? Were that Annalisa Dodds, Bridget Phillipson, Lisa Nandy? Like, really, lots of ideas. And so you just assume, and there's probably people I haven't heard of, and you think they must be working behind the scenes. Like you, there must be people whose full-time job is just like coming up with these ideas. It's just, I'd like them to sort of show me them just to sort of yeah. pull the curtain back a little bit on the, mm. you know, give me a little glimpse into the toy shop storeroom and just go, yeah, no, we're going to bring all this stuff
2: out <laughs> at some point. The problem <laughs> is that the reaction is so predictable. Mm-hmm. The moment they unveil a policy, the question, are you going to pay for that? Or they're going to put your taxes But that's like racist, but But maybe that's not so powerful anymore. But the the point is, I think it's only Westminster watchers and wonks like us that get exercised by the lack of policy. I think the vast majority of voters need a narrative. Absolutely. Need to Mm -hmm. be told what sort of country this will be the day after the election. They don't fucking care if you do it with free broadband, or if you adjust the, the tax rate for companies up a little or down a little or put up a corporation. Like they, they, they don't give us stuff. They, they want to know that it will be a, just a nicer, fairer place to live in. I completely and if you agree. Can, can convince them of that story, mm. you've won the election.
4: Yeah, and I would add to that. I think, yeah, the... The, the, the single biggest failing I think that Keir Starmer has in that respect and I agree and I, I, because I want him to succeed but I've also had the experience now many times of having Labour leaders or Labour candidates you kind of hold up into the light and go if I look at it this way and squint this way and maybe look like at that it will be the, the, the candidate yeah. that I want it to be and, it just, and, it, and you know sometimes that it isn't and they don't have that you know, X factor for want of a better word but the thing the single biggest thing that I would change if I could about Keir Starmer is that when he's put in front of a camera he looks happy to be there And at the moment, he doesn't. He looks like it's an Mm. imposition on his time, and he's being being slightly inconvenienced by whatever the question is he's being asked. And you Mm. have to have a candidate who says, I'm so glad you've given me this opportunity to, that's such a great question, because that really gives me the opportunity Mm. to Mm. tell you the story that I've got about the country I want to lead. And until he can crack that, he's not a campaigner. And whatever happens in the next 18 months, when it gets to campaign time, if Boris Johnson is still the prime minister, he's bloody good at campaigning. And I Mm. have yet to see that Keir Starmer is, and I'll be worried until he manages that.
3: Mm. I love that. That's a very specific (laughs) kind of applause. It's the, I'm sorry, that's true. (laughs) 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 Oh, shit. Oh,
1: no. Oh, no. Do we we have time for more or are we done? More. One more. One more.
4: There's a, oh, we're in injury time now. <laughs>
1: um, I'd like the panel to imagine that they're having to make a hostage video. And in this hostage video, um, you're to explain why Brexit was actually a good thing all along. So I'd like your Brexit silver linings, please.
4: <laughs> Hang on, can I be clear? Is this, Does this have to have an encoded thing that my family watching it will know that I've been <laughs> coerced into doing this? Or do I have to try and make it a sincere argument?
3: Have I them. love that. To be like, Daniel Hannan is a very credible intellectual figure. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important that vacuum cleaners
1: are more powerful than they currently
3: are.
2: Well, the European Union is quite clearly better off without us. Does that, does that help at all? It doesn't really. Do you know what I mean? It's I like don't like even being think that's true. thrown like out of a club drunk. And thinking, well, at least the people inside don't have to put up with it. <laughs> but it's hardly a, a comfort.
3: This isn't true. Um, but the the argument—you um, <laughs> can't start with this <laughs> That's like the Leave
1: campaign's uh, unspoken prologue. I going not form it, <laughs> do this I? Isn't true, and but. <laughs>
3: Um, if. I kind of think that almost everything Boris Johnson does, by the way, comes with that implicit message to the audience. Of, this yeah, yeah. isn't true, but words will follow. Um, so the, the immigration thing that goes around now is the uh, view from experts, and it's not quite true, um, is that after the Leave vote, there was a decline in the salience and the negativity around immigration, because some people in the public thought, right, it's been dealt with, it's been done, and so we can move on to other things. Now, I do think that's quite true for several reasons. First one is those trends existed for several years before the Brexit vote. Um, and secondly, the thing is you have Brexit and then Brexit dominates everything in a kind of bureaucratic, administrative sort of way. Um, and then you have COVID and then you have Ukraine. And it's just like, yes, of course, immigration goes down in salience because, you know, all this other stuff is there. However, probably there is some truth to it. That for a lot of voters, it was like, that's done. That's a done bit. Not just the free movement, but just immigration done. Um, and that changed something. So if you, if you really had to put forward the it, argument, I suppose, from my perspective, you would put forward you know, that I hope one.
1: for your sake you were never taken hostage.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I
3: mean,
2: that would
1: be, I'm afraid, a bullet in the back of the
2: head.
0: <laughs> and, this and isn't
2: <laughs> true, <bud. laughs>
0: not Not unrelated to that. This Brexit was a kind of purgative. <clears throat> it washed out and identified some of the most unpleasant elements and... Hmm. dangerous people in British politics and it revealed them for who they really are and ultimately it will have served that purpose and I hope that we don't that we learn from the experience of Brexit and we learn what it showed us about ourselves and we don't go down that road any further Hmm.
4: Thank you, I'm sorry. They'll never take I'm, me alive. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, they'll never take me alive, so it'll be fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry, if people didn't get to ask questions, so we didn't get time to more. We do have a feature on the podcast called But Your Emails, where you go onto the World Wide Web, you type your question, you send it to us, and then we answer it. Um, so we're very happy to do that. Um, obviously, it's not as much fun, but uh, we will still answer your questions. Um, we should also uh, congratulate Alex... On getting four out of six of the Boris Johnson. His prize. I'm not competitive. His prize will be a Boris Johnson tattoo. (laughs) Where? (laughs) (laughs) On your Johnson. (laughs) Thanks again so much for coming. We've just, uh, we've loved your company. Thank Thank you.